this is Richard Wilson speaking. Um, there's some people who know me as Victor Meldrew, but as far as I'm concerned, Victor Meldrew's dead. Uh, thank you for downloading One Foot in the Podcast. Hello, thank you very much for downloading One Foot in the Podcast with your host Tom. This week I've got a very special guest to round off this this fantastically amazing, surreal, strange, hilarious, poignant, moving, phenomenal sitcom, drama com, that is One Foot in the Grave. I bring you David Renwick in two parts. I have to warn you that the end of this episode ends rather abruptly and I do chime in separately just to say this is the end of the podcast and it's a credit to David because he spoke so freely and openly with me about all things one from the grave that it was really tricky to find a, a moment to bring an end to part one because I just did not know uh, if I'd release it in one part two part because the conversation flows so easily I would hope that you enjoy this episode and look forward to the next week where part two will be available but I cannot tell you how thrilled I was to have David Renwick round off the series as a whole. It's just absolutely perfect. It's likely I'll be doing further episodes. For example, if I'm lucky enough to get further guest stars from the show, maybe some of you like to have a chat about One Foot in the Grave in a more generalised term. There might be episodes you want to go over again. I'll be more than happy to do that. But ultimately, in its organic form, reviewing all six series, specials, comic relief shorts was the goal and I'm so thrilled that it was all, all completed in a fairly timely manner. David Renwick to finish it off is just the icing on the cake. Enough waffling from me. Here's David Renwick talking to Tom Griffith of One Foot in the Podcast. Hello David, what a moment for One Foot in the Podcast, the creator and mastermind behind One Foot in the Grave. And can I just say on behalf of one Foot in the Grave fans everywhere. A huge thank you for all the memorable moments of laughter, darkness, surrealness and poignancy that One Foot in the Grave brought to everybody. Quite, it was quite the, the drama sitcom, wasn't it? Um, well, uh, it's very nice of you to say that. And uh, thank you for um, keeping it alive or, or disinterring it, whichever is, uh, ever is more accurate. Um, and, you know, given that it's so long ago now, uh, it's... Uh, you know, I mean, when you embark on these things at the time, because the technology wasn't there in those, certainly not when we started, um, to imagine that, um, you know, these these things that we were turning out would have a life of any sort this this long after the event is, uh, you know, would have been inconceivable then. So it's, uh, it's yeah. all very encouraging. One from the grave was obviously huge, the biggest sitcom in the 90s. Had it had the nineties given us social media and, and everything else that came on the internet, it'd have been even bigger. And partly mm. why I do this podcast is because there's still it's still got a huge following. But you, I've got to try and find those um, listeners out there in the internet internet domain who don't who aren't aware of the podcast yet, who love One from the Grave. But I think lots of people do listen to podcasts of different genres and and sitcom reviews is getting bigger and bigger so I wanted to you know to do my bit because also I adore one foot in the grave like everybody else does yeah you Richard and Doreen uh, and you know I've had Michael Fenton Stevens and Richard Drew who worked on the set you guys coming on just helps the cause so a big thank you to you all really 
A pleasure. Congratulations on the news of some recent, well, recent One Foot news being the forthcoming book, One Foot in the Grave and Counting. Yes, well, we <laughs> forthcoming being the word. I mean, it's been forthcoming for about a year now, but um, and obviously the situation across the globe has affected things. Um, mm. I I don't know whether this will be out this year. I'm still hoping it will be, but I mean, you know, I finished writing it about two years ago, just as a on a bit of a whim. But um, mm. I'd, I'd heard it rumoured last year in the tabloids, but nothing was spoken of it yeah. again. And then, of course. It was revealed recently, so that that's an interesting bit of reading. And I, I know there was a One Foot in the Grave novel released in the early nineties, wasn't there? Which one of my listeners yes. ki- kindly donated to me uh, last year, which I'm admittedly getting around to, to reading it. I've read a few, a few mm-hmm. chapters, but just to summarise, what is One Foot in the Grave encountering mostly about? Well, it draws upon some material in the TV shows people will recognise, but hopefully in the um, the prose treatment will have, um, you know, additional um, value, additional amusements, as did the first book. I like to think. Um, uh, yes, fact, this one's hard on the heels of that. Twenty-eight years later, or whatever it was, but um, I just thought I'd uh, give it another go. I mean, it's hard coming up with the words. You know, I mean, uh, it's always hard coming up with words, but uh, let alone when there's, you know, sort of a hundred thousand of them or whatever it is you're aiming yeah. to produce. Yeah. Um, but so there's there's it's an amalgamation of uh, of uh, some uh, material that would be familiar and some new material um that is unfamiliar and but there even the old material is sort of interwoven in a new way so um it's kind of um uh, it's a bit tricky really to try try and trace yeah. all of that but it's yeah. it's it's kind of more of the same and you know hopefully if you enjoy the the genre in the first place there's um i think we do you know, i think we do is it sample there. is there touch because some people are speculating if it how victor would cope with year 2000 onwards or is Mm. it just as if things continued in different universes i mean that's a tricky it is it is a a a difficult um uh, balance to strike that obviously because we you know if you take everything as as uh, as um uh, uh, sacred in the television shows he's now dead and has been for 20 years mm. so you have to assume it's it's kind of a parallel universe in in novel form as it was in the first book yeah and different things happen with it with all of the same characters um so yes it's taking place in a world where there is you know uh, an internet and emails and mm. uh, and mobile phones i mean it's astonishing how you know when i came to um, revisit certain plot lines <clears throat> that were um, perfectly acceptable in the television shows. Um, now you say, well, hang on, well, why didn't they ring on his mobile? Or why didn't he get in touch? You know, he'd be carrying a, a mobile around with him. Why didn't they just do this? And he suddenly think, hmm, yes, that's something I've now got to address. Um, his uh, his battery is flat or, or, <laughs> or he couldn't get a signal or whatever, you know, things like that, which, um, you know, actually present in many cases more complications than they did at the time. It's like when you watch some of those old Columbo's um, you know, and he's yeah. absolutely astonished at this technology whereby someone can video someone coming into a room and play it back later. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I, I remember uh, the Broken Reflection episode. Victor mm-hmm. has the, the IT salesman round 
And the, the, yeah. the amount that, how many thousands of pounds was it for a, a word processor and a, yes. it's like, <laughs> I can't remember. It's crazy. But uh, would Victor Meldrew have Twitter? If Victor Meldrew was real and alive now, would he have um, that kind of? I doubt that he would. Um, as I've said before, he's kind of, based largely on me in terms of my mm. my own yeah. and i don't have a twitter i don't have any social media account at all um although in this but i won't be doing too many secrets where i was saying mrs warboys is a, is a big social media oh amazing um, that is brilliant. and so she <laughs> is kind of in and out of um twitter and tweeting and, and gets herself into all sorts of trouble um <laughs> uh, as a result so um that seems Excellent. more in character in a way that she would be someone who you maybe oh. wouldn't expect to be so fantastic oh, um, whereas victor could do without it you know i can see that and doreen's birthday a couple of uh, days ago so happy 95th to doreen um star yes, of Wasp, but the podcast uh, gosh was it really two days ago i mean because i only spoke to her a few days ago and she said she was coming up to but of course being doreen she didn't mention that it was so imminent oh bless she, she said that i think she said the queen was a couple of months older than her but that's as far as she got uh, oh yeah uh, bless her bless her she, heart she was great i mean very sharp um can remember you know anything i was asking of her she could recount it so um, mm. she, was, she was lovely and you were saying about how Victor wouldn't have um, social media much in the way how you, you know, it's not really something for you, which made it mm. all the more difficult for me to get you on the podcast. I must admit, because podcasters who, who you try and um, get stars of a show or writers on sort of do rely on the social media element. So it did make getting you on that much trickier, but I was up for the challenge and thankfully here you are. So it's yes. quite a miracle, Indeed. really. So thank uh, you. I am. Yeah. So, um, oh, when you mentioned Colombo, made me think Jonathan Creek, and I just wondered, was there ever a time, because there was a few of the cast sort of crossed over, so Annette and Doreen made appearance, had been, uh, well appeared in Jonathan Creek, as we know. Uh, I just wondered, had Richard ever been asked or considered for a role in Jonathan Creek as a, as a one-off? Well, um, I did write a part for Richard <laughs> at one time. Yeah. Um, and I'm I actually can't remember now why he didn't end up doing it. It may be that in the end we considered that it wasn't as appropriate for him as I had originally thought. But I don't know how well you know Jonathan Creek, but there was an episode called The Omega Man. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, no, very well. Jonathan, called John Shrapnel, eventually played this Professor Grauman. And I think who was a sort of a, a, a ufologist, someone who um, specialised in um extraterrestrial phenomena and that was a part i think i, I think that's the only time i thought possibly richard could do this i can um, see that i can i can see it yeah because almost sim almost looks similar to the to the actor the yeah, saying, yes, but, yes, um, yeah i'm a massive creek fan and i'm forever making um references to jonathan creek in the podcast you know Everything, everything. Ed Welch, who does the, you know, a lot of the music, I don't know if he worked on Creek as well, but it's the similarities. No, he didn't. Oh, he didn't. Okay. Yeah. But there just seems to be similarities in that regard, and especially with humor, dark humor. But yeah, absolutely. There's a Jonathan Creek podcast out there as well, by the way. It's very good. Oh, it's it's a couple of, so <laughs> they're really good. By, um, by yourself or by someone else. Uh, yeah. Someone, someone, someone yeah. yeah, they very, very good. <clears throat> uh, Jerry and Ian run that. So, um, that's interesting. So he could have appeared in Amiga Man. Yeah, absolutely adore Jonathan Creek. And I would do a podcast if there wasn't one already, but I shan't. You don't want to stretch yourself too thin. <laughs> but I've nearly done one thing. I've ne Series six has been recorded, but I 
I will endeavour to try and get guests on the remaining cast if I can. Listeners still want to come and have a chat about One From The Grave, so I'm still open to that. So it won't okay. um, just stop. So I want to keep it going as, as as long as I can. I suppose my first original question, I know I've asked you a few questions already, but the idea of One Foot in the Grave, how did that come about? What was going through your mind when you were thinking of writing a, a sitcom for just you? Because I know you worked with Andrew Marshall, but what, what was inspiring you? Did the character come first? Was it just the situation what how many years before you actually started writing did it come to as an idea well it was the character that came first and um as i've said before to try and be brief about it it was it was very much a as kind of almost a spur of the moment um enterprise that i had a bit of time on my hands i had been trying to write a, a kind of thriller script um along the lines of um basic instinct fatal attraction those sorts of films that were around at the time yeah. i mean this this did actually become a fully fledged script which i was developing for quite a while with um with uh, talkback and uh, mel smith was going to direct it and um anyway that all fell by the wayside but i um took a pause in writing that thinking this is so difficult maybe i'll try something that comes a bit more readily namely mm. comedy which is what i've been doing principally up to that time and um because andrew was working on something else i just you know well i'll, I'll have a week or two yeah just really you know um just pottering around on something and that there was a character that i had created some years before that a good 10 years when i was under contract at thames television to to come up with some ideas and yeah. shows which again never 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 bore fruit but um and it probably would probably deservedly because i don't think it was in the end was was that good but the character in its um sort of embryonic stage um uh, first appeared in that mm. and again as i've said many times that uh, that in turn took its inspiration from some of the um neil simon characters that i yeah. loved um watching back uh, the prisoner of second avenue um relatively recently i sort of found <laughs> that it was came close to plagiarism really i mean yeah. that character the jack lemon character in that um is very actually now i come to think of it, his name is mel and i don't, oh I don't my god there was any I, 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 that's the first time it's ever occurred to me but i don't think it was any conscious allusion to um to mel i'm not as familiar but i was gonna any of those characters you said you were writing for or writing about they sort of were they real life people that you'd met that come to mind that, you, that i could use that did you know a Mrs. Warboys-esque or a... No, 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 I can't say I can't say that any of them really were based upon um, real-life characters. I don't know whether... I mean, this seems to be a, a trait with a lot of writers, doesn't it? It's, well, this was based upon somebody or other. Mm -hmm. And the closest I've ever been able to get was to say that Victor, in many ways, was based upon me. Yeah. Um, but then so is Jonathan Creek, in a way. Not that, you know, I have that kind of... Um, deductive mind or ability to make tricks or anything but but a lot of the the, the, the sort of um, I suppose the personality traits are are, are quite um, similar mm. and in both those cases I mean really most of what I've written in my career I think my main characters tend to be um reactive characters rather than yeah. proactive characters the same with the um tamsin great character in love soup i mean that i create the situations that are that stimulate them in a way and then they 
they sort of bounce off those situations and react to them, which is not always the case with, uh, well, particularly in comedy characters, where I think you find a lot of the, you know, the most famous ones kind of create their own predicaments mm. in a way and create their own problems, which then become very funny. Yeah. Um, and they are funny characters, you know, dealing with those problems. But um, but in most of mine, they just, they're, they're, the, 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 the comic madness in a way exists outside their own um, control um, yeah. and you know and then they we see see how they behave in that anyway i can't remember what the question was are you, are you asking me where they were based upon people? oh yeah I know. And the you answered no. very clearly no i asked this question to you on the telephone the other day i'll ask it again just for the benefit of the audience was victor meldry always a security guard and just yes, to... that was a real. I yeah. know. I, I heard you. I heard you raise that um, with Richard, yeah. and uh, I thought, blimey, I <laughs> don't have the. Um, I think I said this to you on the phone as well. Mm. That um, it reminded me of the comment someone had made to one of Andrew Marshall. Uh, one of Andrew Marshall's actors in one of his shows. <laughs> what does this character do between um, episodes? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. Try to think of what they do in the episode, which is uh, not entirely an answer, but I, I know. <laughs> I totally empathise with him in that. I mean, yeah. I do try to, you know, kind of <clears throat> fill in, but you can take things so far, I suppose, yeah. and, and maybe not want to take them. But I mean, I, I think I say he was, you'll know better than I, because you know all the, all, every single detail in the show, but was it 26 or 28 years he'd been a security guard? Or it might have been 27. He, um, it was, yeah, actually, something like ironically, that, I, was... I can't, on, on the spot, it was, <laughs> I, thought, I want to say 20, I'll say 22 years, but I think it's, listeners are going to be saying you're talking to David it's about, the first, it's about the first line in the first episode isn't it 26 years as a security guard what must that do to a man's brain it's something like that and oh, um i tell you what sorry to interrupt you I, I was going to surprise you with a little short quiz later a nerdy quiz mm. and the first yes. question was can you can you quote the very first line and you've done oh, it right. subsequently that's the answer <laughs> so he was 26 years he was a security guard so presumably retiring at 60 forcibly retiring so, um, yes. you know, yeah. in his that, that, 20... that leaves a lot of, yeah, that leaves a lot of room before that for him to have done other things, which I've never really addressed, I have to say. And so I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that one. Answers yeah. on a postcard. Well, I think anything that you say is taken as read. If you were to say he was a clown, then we'll believe it. If he was, yes, uh, if he was working in, on st in stage, he was, Victor Malger is very creative. He did a bit of script writing. He Yeah, maybe he was a ventriloquist. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Let's just go, let's yeah. run with that. And I was going to mm. ask about the, the Meldry's finances as, as being something I brought up because uh, Margaret's a part-time florist. Victor is presumably on state pension unless he mm. qualifies for it at that point in time. Because no. But it, again, these are nerdy questions for nerdy fans like me. I wonder how they got by because their house is a modest house, wasn't it? I mean, Margaret was holding it together. Victor held down a few jobs. I mean, I suppose they had savings. It's not a really important question, but one that we like to delve into because we're that invested, I suppose. Yes. I, and again, it's not something I gave a great deal of thought to um, in the Andrew Marshall principle of having enough on my plate trying to think of the funny ideas. Yes, I guess there probably is a certain amount of saving there. I mean, there might have been a payoff from the uh, from the firm, from, yeah. from Watson Poss and Mycroft. I mean, there's another whole dimension is the uh, the literary allusions within my names. But anyway, we'll come back <laughs> yeah. to that. 
Um, <laughs> Your those um, Ren, we, we, I call them the Renwick names because they're they're funny. I mean, there's nothing more I can yeah. say. Well, of course, there are quite a lot of Sherlock Holmes references in the first series. There's the Return of the Speckled Band, and the Valley of Fear was another Holmes novel, as well as Watson yes. Mycroft, um, probably a few others. But another another probably overlooked um, reference point is the Billy Bunter books. And if any of your listeners know anything about Billy Bunter, which was a uh, series I read as a child, they'll know that lots of names in that first series derive from, from there. That's handy um, to know, actually. There's, uh, there's a lot of... Wingate and Coker and Prout and... Um, oh, Mr. Prout, yeah. Mr. Prout. In, in fact, there was a time when I was going, thinking of calling Mrs. Warboys Mrs. Quelch, which Quelch. was the name of his form master, which I thought was a very funny name. And well, <laughs> rhymes with Belch, quite, close to I, Quail. I, yes, well, I suppose, yes, the QU, um, uh, any um, student of comedy, particularly Neil Simon, will know that words with a K in, which I suppppose QU does qualify. That, I think um, so. are, fu- are funny. Anyway, you know, I know. I, in terms of their finance, so really that's about as far as I would yeah, go to, you know, to but, what, but what I was concerned about was never to, to try and um, make them look as if they were too affluent. Mm. Um, it was very much a concern that we didn't overdress their, their home, their, the sets within their home. I had quite a conversation when, I mean, you'll remember that in the beginning of the second series, they... Mm. move house because the first one's been demolished um so they end up in the new home and um the designer had come up with a with a um an invite i mean i you know i got on very well with this design Mm. subsequently this was the first time we actually worked together john asbridge and he did all the creeks and uh, you know brilliant design but it kind of needed saying in the in the early days i think that this this house looked too comfortable uh, in fact, it, it looks too upmarket in a way, and um, it was one of those conversations. Where, well, you can get these uh, these faux Chinese washed wool looking rugs from Marks and Spencers for such and such, and the candelabras and the tie back curtains, and uh, you know they're not that expensive. You want to, but it looks expensive. Yes, it looks very expensive on camera, and I think you know that it's not to do with whether you literally because we're not going to you know show the receipts on screen. <laughs> No, we no. need to make the general ambience and the appearance not look too too wonderful but and apart from anything else you know the whole point of that episode was that they had you know suffered this enormous disaster and they got by with you know their insurance claim to to you know to relocate somewhere else but you didn't want to feel oh they've really landed on their feet here this house is a you know huge improvement on that other one um sure, because that sure. would destroy the whole fabric of the show so yes. um so we were constantly um you know trying to make it look as if they were kind of living within their means yeah because mrs warboys lived in quite an upmarket house like so well that was that UK. was that wasn't that yes that wasn't something that i necessarily approved of, no she <laughs> already say. spoke about that didn't she and uh, she said yeah. that it wasn't ideal but um but you know the theory no, I is did, I, the first time I saw that set was when it was built, and uh, right. I wasn't best pleased. And we did actually tone that set down quite a bit before <laughs> it got on camera. So yeah. um, I can't. I shudder to think now what what other adornments it contained. Um, but uh, those are the things that are quite important, you know, to sort of get right because I. Uh, I've said this before that sitcoms up to that point I felt could largely be divided into those that were very very clearly working class and quite Mm. you know sort of shabby 
um, and those that were, you know, very comfortable looking, thank you, you know, in the, the sort of um, yeah. the good, good life area and Terry and June and things and um, getting it somewhere in the middle that's a bit more nondescript and doesn't um, suggest that, the, you know, they're rolling in money. Um, was was quite quite a difficult thing to do because because mm. the designers do like the design you know they like to put a lot of you know work and thought and you know creativity into their into their sets um, I mean when we did Love Soup just going off topic um, that's the, the Tamsin Greg character's flat which was in Brighton was, was her character was based upon um, my wife um, oh. who was living in Brighton in a flat at that time. And um, commuting as a as a um, as a somebody who ran a perfumery counter in Harrods, and um, you know she had no money, no money at all. But she got this flat in uh, Hove, and um, there was nothing in it. I mean, there was you know the the walls were bare, and I mean it was a very nice flat, and it was very habitable. But I mean it wasn't you know stuffed with um you know pictures and you know wonderful furnishings yeah. and things and i had to when we did the uh set for that for her character in love soup um i, <laughs> I had to say no nothing on these walls please they should all be look completely bare and yeah. sterile because that's the character well that's, and that's, the, that's that the whole really point. goes against yeah. the grain for any designer you know to do that because people will think well that that was a terrible set that design all the just that designer's contemporaries will think they've done a terrible job on it well it's, yeah uh, it's very difficult now i mean the comparison for me like bottom i mean richie and eddie live in mm. this grotty horrible flat and obviously the young ones was the same it's supposed to be what it's supposed to be and so I totally understand what you're saying with, with the example there with Love Soup. And I was going to say, you are known as an absolute perfectionist. That's, that is a compliment, which obviously shows in the quality of anything you've produced in television. I was going to ask, apart from Mrs. Warboy's original house, were there any moments in One Foot you look back on, or maybe at the time it was aired, either regretted or, ref or, or on reflection, wanted to have changed how anything with a particular storyline or... You're obviously proud of what you've done, but as a fan, you go, I might, might have adapted that storyline or changed that. Not that you should have, just curious. Well, to know no, I'm sure that those that must occur because I mean, I've to the, you know, every week was just a question of can we get a show together? Can we knock something together that's, you know, um, sort of halfway transmittable? Uh, so uh, the idea that, you know, all of those are, you know, the most kind of peak of perfection <laughs> um episodes is you know would be sort of way off the mark i i mean um i don't know i mean you might be able to suggest some and i'll tell you whether i whether i think that you're right or, or whether I, I agree or not i can't i mean i can't think of anything that i change other than i would i would i'm a sucker for comebacks for, for sitcoms and victim mm -hmm. is unfortunately dead so i just want them to keep coming but when I spoke to Richard, I, the episode's not yet out. It will be. By the time this episode's out, I'd have released a fan Q&A episode I did with Richard. And I said, yeah. Rich, supposedly David could write a drama or a radio a series of one foot. And I know you, you've released a few in the 90s, but with you and mm. Annette reuniting, would you be interested? And he, said, he basically said yes. So that's my dream, that maybe a one-off, one foot in the grave audio, because I know filming it would be diff difficult now. So that is completely off topic with the question I just asked. But if you're ever thinking of uh, writing a, um, a comeback in the way of a radio series, 
I think it would go down really well. Yes, I, I mean, I've not really had a great experience in radio. I mean, that's a, especially considering I've worked so much in it. Mm. Um, but um, and the, the episodes that we did, we did four in 94 or something, whenever it was, yeah. um, were um, not a not a great experience. And um, yeah, it, mainly because we were sort of out of our medium and I didn't um, I didn't really felt we got the most sympathetic treatment from the production oh. uh, in radio. And I've had um, wonderful relationships in radio over the years, which is where I began. Um, but this wasn't one of them particularly. And um, I, I mean, uh, one, one would work with different people, I guess. But um, it's not something I could... I mean, one of the things that did strike me, you know, most when I was just doing those four adaptations was how difficult it was to to pick out the episodes that weren't didn't have weren't so stuffed with visuals mm. that um you know that they wouldn't work in that so that's why I ended up doing the bedroom episode and the motorway episode because there was so much dialogue in them and and two others that I managed to cobble together but um everything else I looked at was um you know because I have always tried to be as as visual as as visual as as i am verbal in television mm. otherwise i feel you might as well just be all, you know only writing for radio um so yep. i you know and of course visual comedy is so much harder to get right yes uh, you know because it's uh, <laughs> uh, i mean verbal comedy is is hard enough but um when you're trying to get pictures right it's god knows i i was trying to think of what what original ideas are out there that haven't been done yet and i thought i I thought of one, but when I listened to you on a podcast recently, you'd, you'd already spoken of it, but it's something along the lines of characters that you don't actually see, but you hear from next door. So mm-hmm. I think you, did you mention that? Am I imagining that? So I just thought that would be, you'd never ever see the main characters, but you just hear conversations through a neighbor's door, basically. And yes, I think, well, I, I, I thought it, it, stemmed, it stemmed from the, uh, from Nick Swain's mother, didn't it? Uh, oh yeah. Nick Swain. But I said that wasn't original because it again it was the Columbo's wife and uh, oh, Captain yeah. Manning's wife and and people that you I think also Minders was Arthur Daly's wife was she ever seen I don't know her not indoors. as familiar but, with, with that no no I'm not that familiar <laughs> I just remember the expression but yeah. um, I have you know I mean there were thoughts I had and threw away over the years. Um, that um, I think I did did contemplate doing one once where that Victor what Victor wasn't in vision, and it was all um, it all took place in Patrick and Pippa's house with them kind of reacting to and listening to things that were going on next door. I you know I mean these things are all very well, but then you've got to make them work in practice. And yes, um, they, I think the, uh, Pit in the Pendulum wasn't it the episode where they both got the spaghetti jar listening. Yeah, listening yeah. on either side. <laughs> You're very good with your titles, and I not having um, listened to all your um, the, uh, trawl through all 42 episodes. Um, I don't know what how much how much you uh, address the episode titles, which of course is another whole podcast on its own. I got better. I mean, yeah, I I, I don't know, just watching it a lot Some and reading uh, some must be more inexplicable than others i would imagine but um i don't know i mean some are very obvious but uh, the quirkiness of one from the grave is the it's the episode titles that you touched upon already we you know where they might have originated but like i said also yeah the character the funny character names there mr smedley mr foskett mm. mrs skimpson yeah that just makes all the difference and it's similar also with 
and, and I don't think the in the last 15, 20 years, the BBC would allow it. But a lot of product placement, but the mentioning of Tesco's carrier bags or tomato ketchup, mm. Heinz tomato ketchup, it makes it funnier when, when the Victor or Margaret are referencing, you know, the actual product rather than just saying a bottle of sauce. I don't know why oh, it I know, makes yeah. all the difference. And uh, yeah, I don't got away with it, really. My posters. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, has that, has that become more strict now? I wouldn't know. I, I don't know whether I, they... I feel like if you were to watch um, Points of View and you mm-hmm. someone would say, oh, I see BBC are doing product placement again, you know, that kind of comment that people would send in if they see something on the BBC, because they're not supposed to advertise, are they? So it's- I don't know. I mean, I grew up in a, in a time, um, I'm sure before you, when um, you would literally <clears throat> see a box of uh, cornflakes on a breakfast table with a you know, piece of gaffer tape over the word Kellogg's. I mean, yeah. you know, it was as it was as bald as that in those days. But then there seemed to be no rules about it when um, when we were making those shows that I can remember. Mm. Um, you're right. I mean, people like Victoria Wood and Alan Bennett. I mean, they trade in all of the, there's many, you know, the names and yeah. real life products and things. That's that's half the fun. Were there any any storylines? based on any kind of real life experience, whether experienced by yourself or friends and family, anything that influenced, I know you said the characters aren't really based on anyone you know, apart from Victor, a little bit based on yourself, but any storylines, any moments from the show you can go that actually happened or something similar? Gosh, um, well, there may have been, I mean, it's it's difficult when you have to kind of trawl through, fast forward through you know, so many um, shows in your head and think, I mean, my recollection is that every one of them was, you know, like, sort of, you know, drawing blood mm. out of a stone to try and come up with these, these things. Yeah. Um, and there might have been one or two that sort of fell into place more naturally from, from something that had occurred, but I, you know, I'm, and I can't think in, in the same way that I'm still struggling to think of things that I, you know, regret doing or it didn't come out right or you know I mean, I, which is the fact that i haven't cited anything doesn't mean they don't exist no cool no, um, it's just that i'm not i'm because otherwise it makes me sound very arrogant not at all i mean manner of stuff to be fair me asking you any real life experiences that you brought into the show we wouldn't want the likes of hearts of darkness to have happened in real life with the you know the no. harem or, or mr foskett or, or mildred committing suicide i mean sadly it happens but i suppose some of the more comic i mean i'd mm. love to, i'd love for you for you, what your answer to be yeah i did live next door to someone who you go fly fishing out the window actually um, actually now you've now you've said this that that, that, that um no fly fishing <laughs> but uh, no at the beginning of that sentence did trigger a, a um a recollection that um i had a conversation with guy who lived in a house at the back of um that backed onto my my back garden in Luton where I was living at the time where I grew up um who talked about someone who had lived in my house who had um and he didn't I didn't think he was ever very specific about what had gone on but there's obviously something rather horrific and he referred to it as a bathroom job well it's not very nice to talk about is it a bathroom job and uh so I'm not sure whether it was my speculation or whether I later found out that this was someone who had committed suicide in there, presumably a couple of Not Mr. Gitting. Well, this is what gave rise to the Mr. Right. Gitting strand. And so uh, mm-hmm. actually that now have, we have finally isolated one idea that did come from something in life. Uh, I've forgotten about that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, what what did happen to Mr. Gittings in that bathroom? I mean... Well, we assu- we assume, of course, that is elaborated on a bit more in the first novel, which is probably still in a. Oh, I should. I need to do my eBay. homework. Yeah. Um, but, but no, no, it's not elaborated on very much. But it's not much more. But it's it is a classic um, opportunity for Nick Swaney to kind of <laughs> to rile um, Victor up. Of course, it's very similar to. I mean, it's another trait as you as, you know as you go through the series, you you see sort of similar sort of uh, mirror image ideas i mean that's very similar to the moment when um when he's talking to victor in the cafe about the um psycho sam the oh. truck driver who's <laughs> just who's clearly clearly <laughs> run over god knows how many lollipop men and you know things like that that he's just breezily mentioning to yes. victor well, yeah. without seemingly being aware of how much it's you know how much worry it's causing him well that's like mrs warboys uh, oh, oh, isn't it mrs warboys uh, would say all sorts uh yes what, yeah what would what would be your favorite episode well you know that's that's always a, a, a difficult one as well isn't it because you you know if you if you watch a favorite episode too many times it becomes your least favorite episode and um you know you move on to another one or one that's very unfamiliar suddenly so you think oh that was very good i've gotten all that um but um i don't know i was very keen on the starbound episode i thought that was um i because the the hour-long ones gave you more opportunity to yeah. you know for, for a bit more kind of yeah um sort of plotting and um uh, i mean it was hard as well but um i did rather like the um that whole sort of um alien substrand and yeah. um the you know, I just like the the some of the, the sort of the trappings that, you know, we started with that rather eerie um, sort of starscape image at the beginning, uh, which pulled out to reveal that the stars were actually just just on um, this is Warboy's sweater. Um, but that the glowing planet you thought you'd seen was the top of Victor's head. head yeah. you know, it was very, you know, I mean, again, you know, very kind of easy just to write down in a, you know, a stage direction. But to get it right, was very, very mm-hmm. hard. I mean, we shot that. We shot it on location, doing exactly what what it said, you know, with the with the um, with the, the, the sparkly top and um, Richard kind of resting his head because he was asleep against it, and pulling out gradually to reveal it, and it just didn't kind of work at all. Um, and in the end, that was a tribute to our editor Mark Lawrence, who who kind of superimposed various bits and pieces and did all manner of trickery in in the cutting room. And put on some sort of Alzo Sprack Zarathustra ish music yes. over it, uh, library um, music. And it, yeah, if I remember, the, he, I was in the production gallery that day just um, during the afternoon he said do you want to come down and look and see what i'm you know what i'm playing around with what i've done i just couldn't believe it, what he had made out of that raw material <laughs> he'd done such a fantastic job it was amazing on that. Yeah, the, the, and then we finished with that you know hey mr tambourine man which you know with this kind of star, star wars, wars thing credit, yeah credit going out. you know i loved all that um and it just had such a because you know rather tragically this was a time when my own father was um sort of in the last stages of dementia oh. and um and it was a you know anyone that's been through that horror mm. you know, they, they would, would have known that you know the, the accuracy of all that but i mean we didn't make a, a, a you know a, a uh, uh, too much of it in the you know, Nick Swain's mother, but I mean the fact yeah. that she'd been wandering off and came back again. And well, um, yeah, where did she know, go? Where, I mean, I'd love to, love to yeah, know. Yeah. Again, another 
something that you you, you, you might say, I, I don't know, to be honest with you, Tom, but where did she go? She didn't go to... No, we don't know. She, no, she went wandering the streets eventually and, you know, and then came back again. Where did Mrs. Warboy's cockatiel go to? You don't well, this know. Is it. Yes. They then suddenly reappear and all is well again with the world, you know. Um, but it, that, in a way, had the, it had a, the kind of echoes of a Jonathan Creek plot, I suppose, because you had these mysterious phenomena occurring like the scorch marks on the grass which were then explained by the weed killer and things yeah it's 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 kind of all wrapped up quite nicely in the end but we do like the one from the grave is about the pathos and just how everything is so smartly rounded up or everything is just goes full circle but occasionally there's there is the mystery left which I i love we all love a mystery but we do like the fact that they don't know where Mr. Sweeney's mother went probably, like you say, innocently mm. down the road and stayed in a bar or a, a someone's house for a couple of days where they didn't, you know, they didn't think to call the police. But I do mm. like the idea of her being captured by aliens, if I'm honest. Yeah. Who well, knows? who's to Who say knows? she wasn't? Exactly. Who's that. to say she wasn't? But the the enigma um, is so much more often uh, more interesting, more tantalising than just the explanation, of course. Um, I think Stanley Kubrick said that to um, whoever it was, was it Adam Raphael, when they were working on Eyes Wide Shut, that looking back, because, you know, they did a sequel to 2001 or 2010, where things were explained. And he said, as soon as you explain it, you know, the, you know, the mystique is gone, you know, you've lost the film. I mean, the, the, the first time I saw that Star Child sequence at the end of 2001, you know, I was just sort of blown away without in any way knowing what it was you know, hmm. meant to be, uh, what it signified. I mean, as soon as you're told, well, it's based upon this myth that when everyone dies, they become a star is, you know, oh, all right, then kind of lets it down, you know. Um, Things like that. Um, I remember seeing a, a play, stage play called The Gambler, which uh, starred Mel Smith. I don't know if it ever came to much, but it ended, just ended with uh, so much was riding in the story on the toss of a coin. And at the end of the, of the play, he tossed, his co- tossed the coin, slapped it on the back of his hand, looked at it. And you never knew whether it was heads or tails. And that was the curtain, you know, and those yeah. things like, again, I'm, as you know, I'm going to say um, the very final moment with Margaret coming out of uh, Hannah Gordon's house. You don't know. Well, that is what, a separate yeah. question altogether. Like, I, mm. I would really like an answer from you. OK, so it, no one knows. You don't know what what happened. OK, no, but no, we, we it's fun. It's fun to come up with theories. But did, did if she didn't kill um Glynis. did she do any kind of damage to her would she have gone back to do something else she was adamant throughout that episode i will kill the bastard was that yeah. which you know i feel like i'm margaret was very convincing in that episode that she will get revenge for victor's untimely death and he wasn't exactly old you know he, he would only been about 70 wouldn't he so she's obviously robbed with an, of a, a good 15 20 years more of um having victor by her side what what yes. what, what could she have done if, if, if you were for, for to rewrite that would you come up with a different idea would you go no let's just leave it as no a- i don't think i would i think I, I think i felt that was that was correct what what uh, what we did there um and of course you had within it the you know as a sort of counterpoint the stuff with the priest who was pleading with her to find in her heart to mm-hmm. forgive 
Um, but so, you know, you're left with a big question mark, which of those routes did she take? I mean, um, yes, we played it rather melodramatically in the scene where she's, you know, you got the big close up of Annette watching her as she drinks the uh, orange juice. Um, but I mean, that was, that was kind of part and parcel of how Annette, you know what Annette had always brought to that character that she, there was a very steely quality to oh, Margaret yeah. and she wanted um as, as there is with Annette she didn't have much difficulty in uh, in delivering you know I th so I didn't feel that, that didn't seem out of character for her to to be capable of doing it mm. um, now whether she did it right is another matter but I remember talking to her I'm not even sure what I said but the moment of course the key moment is where she comes out of the house and sits down in the car and um you know she takes stock of what she's done or what she hasn't done and it was quite a tricky thing to you know kind of talk her through because I didn't know exactly what it should be but I said well you this is the moment where you either have or haven't poisoned her <laughs> and we want the audience to be left in in a state of doubt about it but it could it should be able you know, it should work either way Hmm. And maybe you just need to take this kind of big breath and a big, you know, exhale and just feel right. You put this behind you one yeah. way or the other. OK, seatbelt, switch on the ignition, off you go. And then we're into the traveling Wilburys, you know, and um, which is what she did. And I thought what she, you know, what she did deliver there was, you know, was just the, the perfect um, piece of acting because it, you know, it just didn't tell you anything or told you everything, depending upon your view, really. I tell you what threw us all off the scent, all off the scent. But that opening scene, Margaret's on the phone to some lawyer firm, and she just yeah. casually mentions, well, not casually mentions, you know, since my husband's been dead for however many months. You think, oh, you just drop that on us straight away because we're thinking it's going to be all played in chronological order, and it mm. sort of is on the flashbacks. But that really threw me off. You know, I was watching One Foot in the Grave as it was aired, probably from the specials onwards. Um, so, I, you mm -hmm. know, nearly 35 now. So I was, you know, 14 when when that aired. And shame on those who watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, first millionaire winner, by the way. Because <laughs> that obviously clashed, didn't it? But I was like, no, yeah, how could you watch? So, yeah. I just, but nevertheless, yeah, I think you're right. I think most people say she didn't She didn't kill Glynis. I think she assumed that the killer was just uh, maybe a male, a young male driving reckless, recklessly. When she realised it was this Glynis who she'd become quite close friends with, probably thinking, yeah, it's not as bad as I thought. But yeah, like you said, she's reflecting on the idea of the advice she's been given by this priest, just forgive. And... Well, that was certainly the, you know, that was the kind of journey you wanted the audience to go on. Yeah. Um, I mean, having decided that, uh, that that Victor would, we would kill him off in that episode, um, but not through any, you know, really horribly grueling, um, you know, terminal disease. It had to mm. then be something that, you know, just like an accident, you know, an unfortunate accident. And, you know, why not make a point of, um, you know, having a go at reckless drivers at the same time? Yeah. But then having got that far, then you think, well, there's a sort of dramatical imperative here to try and make it interesting with a sort of twist yeah. rather than just, just have some kind of, some hideous yob 
character who's yeah. just moaning him down and driven off. Actually, it tends to be, you know, this really sympathetic friend of, of Margaret's who's also lost her husband. And that, in fact, it explains why, why it's happened anyway. Yes. Um, so that was the surprise we were trying to keep up our sleeves. We'd, we'd already announced that he was going to die. So you, yeah. for those you, say, you didn't know it was going to be, you know, in, in retrospect. But um, then, of course, one newspaper um, to remain daily expressless, <laughs> found that out and printed yeah. the bloody thing, you know, but two or three days before it went out. I was absolutely well, furious. They, 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 they released the details of how Victor had died, did you yeah, say? Yes, they oh, said that it was Christ. Anna Gordon character. Why were they... So, um, so no, I, I just picked up the phone and I, you know, I said, Get, put me through to your, <laughs> put me through to your, um, your, your news desk. And um, some poor girl picked it up. I don't know. I mean, bless her. I mean, she had nothing to do with anything. I don't no. think she just happened to pick up the phone and got an absolute mouthful. You went full Victor. Did you go full Meldrick? Yeah. yeah. You did. Yeah. yeah. So oh. I think she was still shaking it. Well, because I, <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't give me any comfort to, to know that I, you know, that she suffered particularly. But then why would you work on the Daily Express? But anyway, Francis Pardell, who was our um, uh, head of the, the comedy department publicity said that she was <laughs> she was still shaking when she put the phone down this girl apparently but i'm just hoping that the point was made and that it was conveyed to somebody because even then you know this is 2000 year 2000 you know it was just a given that all the soaps you know you would know what was going to happen yeah that, yeah it was just a thing they did and still do um but for goodness sake that's like saying you know who the murderer is in a Inspector Morse or an Agatha Christie or something. It's just ridiculous. It is great. Because it's a comedy, they could get away with it. I think... Sorry, I'm turning into... No, it. Yeah, so no, we, more, want, no we want more of this. No, this is good. This is, this is golden. Keep this up. No, But I, I mean, if it, you know, if it makes it... I, I didn't know about... I mean, I was a 14-year-old lad, but I didn't hear any spoilers. No, I'd hope you wasn't. weren't coming through the Daily Express. <laughs> no, that age. Yeah. I still don't either. But it, no. there's no social media for many years after that. So I, thankfully, very few people would have known. But that's not the point, is it? They, they shouldn't have no, no. spoiled... I don't, don't know what they get out of that. Other well, than... there was there was another one prior to that, where um, which you will obviously know all about, The Wisdom of the Witch, which ended with a shot of Victor Maldrew's tombstone, um, which yes. again was meant to be, um, you know, a big sort of surprise because the whole um episode was um was kind of bookended without those grave graveyard scenes with her writing a letter um and it was only when she got back home that you realized it was his father's tombstone but when we shot that um in the in the cemetery um some there was a photographer of him somewhere i think it was in the sunday mirror who turned up and he, he'd just taken a photo of the tombstone um, so there's nothing we can do. What, what do you do? I'm confiscating that camera. You know, you're not allowed to. So, of course, it due, the picture duly appeared in that Sunday's um, Sunday. I think it was the Sunday Mirror, you know, with various speculation about yeah. is Victor dead? Is this the end? And, oh, God, please. It's just so you're always up against that. You know, there was there was a bit of um, a bit of a foreshadowing in Endgame, which is probably my favorite episode. Mm. I remember that Chris, uh, Christmas it came out. ninety. Seven, seven, um, yeah. Oh my God! When Margaret's on her deathbed, essentially the life support machine is indicating a heart stop, and the close-up of Victor's eyes, and then obviously the yeah. larger scenes that got well, it, it didn't. It would have got many people, but how you turn that from tragedy, impending tragedy, to the nurse kicking the life support machine 
And obviously, mm. thank God she's alive. And I just thought, you sort of saying, bloody Renwick has done it again. You know, he's just toying with us here. But there was a yeah, bit well, of at the end of that because Victor is raging about driver, the drivers of today. I can't remember the exact quote. And of course, he does end up getting killed by a driver. But yeah, that's, that's true. That's purposely like done Russian roulette, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've had it in mind then that I'll probably kill him off by this means. No. No, okay. no, no, no. Just well, I mean, that was that was three years ago. <laughs> yeah. mm. I rarely thought more from week to week, let alone planning three weeks in a three years in advance. But um, well, of course, we'd set that up with the bloody machines. We've had about three of those, haven't we, beforehand? There was the um, telephone answer machine and Tim Brooke Taylor's um, video yes. recorder. Yeah. So it was kind of it was it was the seeds were sown for that moment. It's all sort of basic. It's basic sort of comedy structure that you know it's you, you set set a few things up in advance like that and then pay it off i've, I've got a, a jonathan creek episode specific question you know we're mm-hmm. talking about giving away how you know a plot point as a one-off in one of the later episodes i think it might have been we, we basically see how a murder or how someone has been murdered and I think, yeah that's the first that, one it's the uh it's the letters of septimus yeah quite an unusual approach because we see Jonathan Creek up against a it's a David Tennant lookalike. What was um it was I think it was that's Sherlock right, Holmes. Yeah, so yeah, what what was the idea? What was the reason behind sort of letting us the audience know what's happened? Because that's quite a unusual approach, isn't it? We we see Jonathan well, trying of to work course, out. I, yeah, I mean, I um, in that the original inspiration for Jonathan Creek partly was um, Columbo, where of course they do that every single week. That's the whole you know format of the show is to show who does it how they do it and then it's all the fun is in seeing him work it out yeah um and i it had always been part what i thought one of these days i'm going to do one where you you know who and how it's happened um and it wasn't until i got to that in a stage of the series that i um decided to to go with one of those i think to be honest i think probably part of my thinking was that the solution to it maybe wasn't would you know works better if you can see it actually happening in real time rather than in chronological order as it were rather than revealing it as the explanation after the event when it might have seemed a little bit too pat mm. <laughs> i mean yeah. god knows they're hard enough to come up with anyway but um Crikey, yeah. i think it, it, it sort of worked better that way around and also it made it you know made it a little bit different and there were some sure. other things in it that you you know were um that were maybe more interesting than that but it was quite it, you, but still you had the intrigue of wondering how he was going to you know solve it a couple a couple of um friends and i i'll give their names simon and alex we're we still watch Jonathan Creek together like the sad gits we are like in the respect that we're grown men watching you know for in our teens and 20s especially but we we made a couple of trips to the the, the windmill um just to have a little round we drove a good three oh, hours really? so we, we yeah. went that far just to see <laughs> Jonathan Creek's home and uh sadly not open to the general public anymore because I think you used to be able to buy a ticket and have a, a tour but amazing I to think, think so it's... well it used to be owned by Hilaire Bellop and um, uh, of course, the interior is, bears no resemblance to the one on the screen, or the, mm. where the downstairs does more with all the brickwork yeah. and everything. But I mean, that was a major, major 
um, set dressing job by our, again, our wonderful designer, John Asprich, which eventually became so expensive to do, not yes. just the, the uh, cladding of the, of the, the windmill, but the um, fact that it was a location shoot yeah. know, out of town. And so yeah. we had to put up everyone in hotels. So we stopped doing it there in the end. But uh, yeah. this, this has uh, turned into One Foot in the Creek podcast. So yes, I'll no, get back on no, topic. No. Sorry. Um, yeah. I was going to say the Meldrews, I mean, they had really. A relationship like no other obviously that the generic opinion of some of the critics uh maybe that margaret put up with a, an awful lot which yeah perhaps the decibel levels in the household were fairly high when victor was ranting and her stress levels would have risen when witnessing victor being attacked but there were a few occasions where victor wanted just to be honest with the next move they would make when landing in a sticky situation and margaret would quite often prefer to save face you know just landing them in trouble you know for example Kylie, the tortoise, Victor being mistaken to be someone called Steve Posnett, uh, Monday morning will be fine. She, he wants to tell <laughs> the truth in most of the, most of the time. He, the bottle of um, expensive wine, Pippa's father's birthday present, Victor, just, let's just come clean. No, absolutely not. And it just yeah, untold yeah. stress. I mean, purposely done, of course, but just more of an observation. There was the moment where she found that money as well, which he was yes. that they should give back. Yeah, yeah and, and of course she we're thinking, yeah, that is the right thing to do. But, you know, the poor woman's just lost their job. And that goes back to the earlier question about the Meldrews' finances probably being a little bit tight. You know, she needs to hold on to that 80 mm. quid or whatever it was. So, yeah. yeah, what I find is when I was younger, people tend to say that Victor Meldrew, wouldn't, wouldn't it be awful to live with? And But no, people are on Victor's side, aren't they? Well, I hope so. I mean, we have, there's always, you know, this this sort of disparity between the, you know, what we, you know, what we set out to do in the show and what we did do, and the yeah. and the and uh, the perception, um, on you know, on the part of a lot of the audience and critics. So, um, you know, there was someone in the BBC once rang up the office and said, "We need a clip, we need a good clip of Victor being mean because we we're to illustrate something they were doing in some documentary." And they said, "Well, he's not mean, you know. <laughs> he's not, not mean. a mean, no. not a mean person. He, you know, he's prepared to give up his." Christmas Day to go and you know help the homeless yeah. and uh, there was another one about we're with this we want to persuade us from the people you know, making some promo about paying the license fee and um, you know we want to have him do a bit of a rant about um, you know uh, about the license fee and you know why he doesn't want to pay it and we say why he should pay it well, how do you know he doesn't want to pay the license fee? you don't know yeah. anything about it well you it? know I think he probably is a big advocate of public service television um, but they make these assumptions based upon, you know, just kind of facile um, interpretation of, the, of you know, what they see in the well, It's la lazy, isn't it? Lazy critiquing of that. They need to watch the show. I mean, if we're talking about mean, I think a lot of my listeners and I talk about a particular moment in Dramatic Fever when Victor's trying to take up script writing and mm. Margaret's quite mean about it and he's ripped, ripped <laughs> up his work yeah. i just think that's that's quite um sad really invested in the character yes, by this point. There's, some, there's some very funny point moments in, in that to me i mean which are just totally down to richard's performance rather than singing my own praises but when, when he's reading that in and reading and writing it to himself in the uh, in bed and he just stops and chuckles away at things he's read and he <laughs> says oh what is it okay no 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 not till i finished and then he reads a bit and laughs again i mean that is richard at his absolute best i mean and as he was in that same episode where he was um watching the you know the action unfold on stage oh, which he brilliant. took to be a farce and um i mean <laughs> so all clever. of that was <clears throat> which we shot in a theatre in Watford. And, uh, you know, when the camera was on him, of course, there was nothing going on on the stage at all. Um, 
uh, Susie was just our director was just talking him through it because um, it was just him sitting there in the stalls with no one else in the theatre you know and he takes out his bag of M&Ms and everything but those reactions are priceless you know and, uh, I, yeah uh, is it Secret of the Seven Sorcerers when he's listening to Python uh, Mrs. Yeah. Walker's just spilling her heart yeah. out and he's timing his Richard Wilson's got a funny laugh hasn't he at the end of the day and when it when I yes. spoke when I spoke to him he, he let out a few laughters yeah. after the moment and I thought Oh, yeah, he sounds exactly the same, you know, 25, 20, 25 years on, he's still got that Victor voice about him. Obviously, it's his, his voice, but yeah, that's one of the highlights for me that is just absolutely raw with laughter. My dad was saying, uh, he watched that episode the other day, he just couldn't, the tears are rolling, just comic timing, isn't it? It's your writing, yes. it's there. Uh, well, it is, and I think, you know, you have to, you know, sort of balance that against with people think he's only funny when he's shouting and moaning at people, yeah. but I mean, he's just as often funny to me, Richard, when he's, you know, when he's being cheerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when he's, when he's, kind of in his own world just about to cut that teddy bear's head off and make his, you know, all those little the little sort of things that he does as you say like writing the sitcom and you know little um occupations that he you know gets into i you know i enjoy all of that and um can i raise a delicate I, i'm not going to call it a plot hole in any way someone else brought this up and when their house got, probably is probably when their house, got, their house got demolished and presumably everything inside it did a lot of Victor's possessions, Secret Seven Sorcerers, all of his um, equipment is in a later episode in their new house. Now, did he just buy some new stuff, like the wooden puppet as well in is it Hole in the Sky? Or would that have just been he had possessions yeah. that weren't demolished? I, you know, not. it's not like, it sounds like a criticism. It really isn't. No, just, well, just know how that would have come about. Yeah. Uh, the Ventriloquist Dummy, that was before the... Um... That was before that. That was in the first. No, was that was in the second. That was in the second series, wasn't it? Yeah, because that was. Uh, yeah, Mr. Swainey's. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. So that was another one that seemed had to have been. Who will buy? I don't know. Maybe he had them all in storage, all his puppets. I I don't know because it was a fairly thorough demolition job, wasn't it? Am and, I? An, um, have I been? An, I've been an arsehole, haven't I? But I no, no, not at all. I mean, they, you I've know, debated, it, I've debated it, it, it with. It, yeah, no, well, it's not, it, you know, if I, you know, you find yourself on the spot thinking now I've now got to find a way to justify that rather than I haven't, that I have an instant explanation for it. But I suppose, you know, when the, when the time came round to come up with those ideas in the second series onwards, and you think, you know, certain things depend upon possessions or artifacts mm. from the past yeah. but to, you know to to get make the comedy work if you then think oh well you wouldn't have any of these now because they're all destroyed well, this, you know in this in this demolished house that's another idea out the window um it, you know you're sunk um i i, but, I think but, I, but give me time and i'll, uh, I'll yeah maybe maybe they were lodged with a, a friend or a relative or something i i think okay. i think i might have speculated that perhaps um mrs Wallboys is the original house was so big he might have stored a lot of his equipment there or perhaps in secret of the seven sorcerers he's got a lot of magician friends maybe they they just kept the storage and then he took it back but it honestly that's the only thing again with podcasts we're, we're tearing everything apart because mm, in, quite right now well average viewers aren't reading into that and i wasn't that wasn't my observation i'm going to blame um ben who was one of my first listeners who sort of he didn't again didn't bring up in any kind of critical way he's just curious to know 
Oh, where, where is that stuff in store? <laughs> I thought, if I could ask David, I will one day. But yes, no, same. I don't want right to see you off. And then, but... Yes, and, and the history will record that I didn't have a satisfactory answer to it. That's okay. If we can, we could probably possibly move on to some of the uh, other characters. I mean, the beauty of One Foot is like like other successful sitcoms, the supporting characters, two of which the kookiest of the lot, Mrs. Warboys, Mr. Swaney. Hello, everybody. I unfortunately have to interrupt this podcast to say that that will be it for this week. Part one with the great David Renwick. Thank you to David for giving up his time. Part two will be available next week where we'll pick up where I left off with the discussion points beginning with Mrs. Warboys and Mr. Swaney, amongst many other questions that I ask of David. I really couldn't find an appropriate place to end, but it is exactly halfway through. And really, the conversation flowed that well with David that it really was difficult to think, where could I end this? So I'm ending it at this point. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, please email onefootinthepodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at onefootinthepod. It'd be lovely to hear from you all what you thought of the first part of the episode. Again, I'm, I'm really sorry for the abrupt ending. I'm sure the wait will be worth it when you hear the second part of the episode. Take care, everyone, and I'll speak to you soon. Right.